Good morning. It's good to see you guys here this morning. Welcome to Genesis. Uh, so good to have an opportunity to gather with you and to continue our conversation through the scripture in Genesis and how God is spoken to all of mankind, and we get to be a part of that conversation. Um, We are in Genesis chapter 18, and we're going to cover chapters 18 and 19 this morning, and I want to pause and pray before we get started as well. Father, as we take time and put aside an opportunity to hear from you, we ask that our hearts indeed would be open to your voice, that we would lean into these scriptures to see what you would say to us and what you have said to all of mankind. And Lord, might we not only hear these things, but might we put them into practice into our lives. And by living this way, May we be an example of who you are to the world around us. We thank you again for this time and we ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's so important that we have the right frame of mind when we are looking at the scriptures or really life in general. It's so easy to be blinded by something and just assume that we know what it is the right way. Have you ever been singing a song and had it in your head and you find out you've been singing the words wrong all along? You know, it's like, what was this? You know, excuse me while I kiss this guy. You know, and it's like, oh no, it's kiss this, kiss the sky. I had it wrong all the time. I like that so much better. And it's like, if you get it in your mind that you're singing something wrong, pretty soon that becomes normal. Pretty soon this is what it, the song says. And the, what it really says doesn't make sense to you because you've already adapted a mindset that says, this is my interpretation and this is how I see things. And it makes it difficult for what is true to actually get through because of your prejudice, because of how you are already locked into something. And I think that is something that happens to us many times. I, I think it happens in Scripture. I, I think we will see in these two chapters and I'm not going to be able to cover every little detail of them, but in these two chapters, something is being said that maybe we have missed all along because we've been focused on specifics that aren't the whole narrative. And so let's start reading verses 1 through 8 in Genesis chapter 18. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, open it. If you need a copy, raise your hand and they'll get one to you, but we're going to go ahead and start reading. And so verse 1 of chapter 18, it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. While he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance to his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant, very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said. I love that. Wives love it when you run in there and say quick. (laughs) Quick, make something to eat. Get three sayas, that's like 36 pounds of finest flour, and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. What a strange series of events. That we have here. How interesting when you would encounter God that your mind would go to this quick, let's get him something to eat. You know, a while back I became very frustrated with my 
Christian experience and with things that I was seeing take place in the area of ministry that I was in. I saw that there was this real emphasis on knowing the Word. You need to know the Word. You need to know the Scripture. And there was very little emphasis on character, on becoming a better person. And what I saw is that I and uh, many like me were becoming very moralistic, very self-righteous, very opinionated, very argumentative. want to prove that I know the truth. I want to prove that you don't know the truth. And I started becoming aware of this in my mind, and we weren't becoming better people. We were coming, becoming better debaters, better arguers, but not better people. And one of the things that we need to see is, you know, I'm not getting kinder, I'm not becoming more thoughtful or more loving, so even if I know the Scripture and if I know the Word of God, it's not automatically changing who I am. And, and there's all kinds of, you know, little... Uh, snippets, word phrases out there. Seven, you know, weeks or seven days without the word makes one week, you know, and it's spelled W-E-E-K. You know, you've seen those things. Or, you know, the quoting of scripture, you know, your word have I hidden my heart that I might sin against you. And I think, okay, that's a powerful scripture, but if it's not taking place, then something is wrong. It's not just Reading it, there must be something to this hiding it in your heart that's an important part of that passage. And usually I would get into the mind of, am I doing the right thing? Instead of, am I becoming the right person? And I think more important than what am I doing should be the question, who am I becoming? Because who cares how much you know if you are someone who is unapproachable? Who cares about the truth you understand if you are someone who is not compassionate? I remember running into someone who used to go to a church that I went to a long time ago, and I, it was when Genesis first started, and I ran into him. He was doing this model airplane out in the field, and it was really cool. And I said, hey, man, how are you? I haven't seen you. I used to play in a band with him long time ago and he says good and I asked him what he was doing and he said he was going to this other church and he told me you know I just had to leave where I was because I couldn't go to a place where the pastor just hated people and you think that's a terrible thing to say right I hope you guys aren't saying that you know I hope that's not the case but what a what a terrible thing to say about this person who is overseeing them, that he had the impression that this pastor just didn't like people. And so who cares how great of a teacher they are if they don't love people? Something is wrong. And being involved with church for so long and in being involved with ministry for so long, I began to see behind the curtain, so to speak, and so here are churches that have thousands of people attending. And I know the dirt about the leadership and about the pastors. I know they're lying. I know that they're slandering. I know that some are, have had affairs. I know that some have been physically violent with people. And then you see this and you say, oh my gosh, what is going on? It doesn't matter what you know. What are you? Who are you? And you start to see this pharisaical attitude that what Jesus condemned in the Pharisees has become a norm in many instances in the church, and it's terrible. And the important things, Jesus says, you know, you... you Work your ties and, and you get a tenth of every spice and everything, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, like mercy and justice and kindness. Where are those things? And what strikes me here 
in this passage in Genesis is what we really see Abraham doing is being hospitable. He's showing hospitality to these three men who's the Lord who shows up as these three men. One of them appears to be the Lord and the other two are angels or messengers. Some say it's a a kind of Christophany, an appearance of Christ before his birth. Whatever it is, the Lord shows up, Abraham recognizes it, and he's hospitable. I mean, he runs. Quick, get some bread. Gets the calf. Quick, make something to eat. Can I get some water for your feet? Can I, can I get you something to refresh you? Here, sit under the tree. And then he's standing there like a servant over the Lord waiting on him. And I love that picture, waiting on the Lord. That's what I think of. When you're waiting on the Lord, you're not sitting there. Okay, here I am. Say something. No, you're, you're waiting. All right, do you need something? What are you going to say? I, I'm ready. Just tell me. Oh, you want some more curds? I don't know what curds are, but I, it doesn't sound appealing, right? And that's what happens to yogurt if it's left too long. It, it gets curded, you know? And, and so you're just kind of waiting for this. What do you need? What do you need? But there is this sense of hospitality. And we've talked about this as we've been going through the book, how tribes were so important because you were always in danger. There was always another tribe wanting to get your stuff, your herds. And so when you would see accounts of they got these men who were able to fight, that was a necessity. That was for survival. These were violent times. And hospitality was very important because if you snub the wrong person, you could lose everything. But Abraham is very hospitable. And it reminds me of a passage in Timothy. If you can, turn there to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And Paul is talking to Timothy, a young pastor, and he's trying to inform him how he is to conduct himself in this area of ministry. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Here is a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. If someone wants to be a leader in this area of ministry of a church, it's a, a noble thing that they want. He goes on in verse 2, Now the overseer is to be above reproach. That sounds... Yeah, they should be a person who doesn't have any hidden secrets, any sins in the closet that are going to come up and end up on the news. Faithful to his wife, that's a good one. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. And then able to teach. And he goes on, he says he shouldn't be a lover of money, he needs to manage his own help, his household well. And I love in verse 5, he says that, Or verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he might become conceited and fall under the same judgment. Verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders. When you look for someone who is going to be a leader, Paul says, I want someone who has self-control, who isn't argumentative, someone who is hospitable. These are important qualities for a leader. Now, do you hear that much? Able to teach. You know, he's got to be able to say something when he gets up there and talks. But that's not even the focus. That comes after hospitality. That comes after self-control. You see, because what God is wanting to do is develop character. He's wanting people who can represent him. We've been created in his image. He wants someone who is going to exemplify that image. And these are the characteristics. And you think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. Love, joy. Those are things that are supposed to come out of a person. And so it's not about how much information they know. It's not about how eloquent they are. It's not about how they know the Bible. It's about are they hospitable? And that is something that I think we've lost. We've lost the importance of what it is to be hospitable to people. And so instead, we become, those of us who are followers of Jesus can become very judgmental, very argumentative. We've got an opinion about 
everything. And we will let you know, and it will be on Facebook. (laughs) If we don't like Noah, we will tell you why. And we don't realize, I think, sometimes the things that we're saying because we say it as if, yeah, this is just how it is. I had read one article just about the movie, and I haven't seen it yet. You know, I've heard different things. I'm going to see it. I want to see it. But I heard this one article and one person's comment on it. Well, the director is an atheist, so I won't go see it. And I've seen that comment a few times. And think about that. Think about your friends who go to your Facebook page and want to find out and say, oh, I wonder if, you know, Sam would want to go see Noah with me. He's a Christian and they see on my face, I won't go see it because the director was an atheist. Woo, okay. My hairdresser's an atheist. I guess I won't get my hair cut either. Well, it's not historically true. You know, Noah doesn't say anything in the story until it's done. So if you're going to write a movie about Noah, you've got to embellish something. Otherwise, you're going to have the guy just stand there the whole time. <laughs> right? So you've got to embellish the story. And so, yeah, historically, you know, it's not going to have all those things correct. I understand that. Neither did Abraham Lincoln, the vampire slayer. You know, that wasn't historically correct. You're going to have, you know, offend some people who are Abraham Lincolnites. I don't know. You know, that walk around with beards and top hats and say, <laughs> violated our president. Um, but we can become so opinionated, so judgmental, and we don't think of opportunities there and how we conduct ourselves as whether it is going to be people that are now approachable to talk about this. Every time a movie comes out that's about spiritual things, it's an opportunity to engage in conversation. When the Da Vinci Code came out, I read the book because I'm not going to spend the money on a movie that doesn't have you know, a lot of blowing things up and stuff. I'll save it. I'll watch the video later. I just save my dollars for the action stuff or things that I want to be visually, you know, Anyway, the point is, I read the book because I want to know what the conversation is, and I want to be in that conversation. I want to be able to participate. And just being opinionated, yeah, we don't do that, I don't like that, it's not very hospitable. It's very alienated. You know, whether you like the movie or not, that's up to you. I've heard good things, I've heard bad things. I mean, just in the quality of the movie. But recognize how you present yourself. Are you a person who is hospitable? Are you a person that is approachable? Are you a person that goes out of your way to try and engage in the conversation? You see, this is challenging for me because I'm not a real outgoing person in this conversation. I'm pretty introverted. I know some of you are saying, you? But it's true. I'm not one that goes out of my way to look for conversation. I kind of get nervous. I, I sweat. And then my hands are sweating. I shake hands. And you're thinking, what's with you? You know. And But here, Paul tells us, and we see in Abraham, that we're supposed to be hospitable. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Jesus said, when I was a stranger, you invited me in. And we see that this is a very important quality that God has for his people. Hospitality. It's something that Abraham shows to the Lord at this time. And that enables the conversation. And so, as they are going on, in verse 9 it continues, the Lord asks, where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. They're in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, we don't know which one, but one of them said, I love that, just, I have so many questions and I don't have a lot of information. It just makes me curious. 
all these things. And I hope it makes you curious too, because you keep wanting to read and, and find out. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself. I love that. As she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And so God busts her. And I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied. That's not good. Don't lie to God. She lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. I think that is humorous. I I think we need to adopt a, a generous sense of what is possible God says, is this too poss- impossible for me? Is anything impossible for the Lord? I, I think we need to uh, adopt this posture. We-, we need to develop new experience and so we don't get into the routine. You know, people who are depressed, they stop doing anything. They- it's hard for them to get out of bed. Anything different becomes laborious. And so they just get into a routine and do less and less and less, and they kind of numb their mind and mentality. God is calling Abraham to something new. (laughs) You're going to have a kid. Now, I know some of you who have babies, okay? And you know what it's like to have a baby, that it's a lot of work. You don't sleep. You don't get to shower all the time, at least the wives, you know. If... He takes a long enough nap. Maybe you can sneak one in there and get out there. I can remember Corrine when she was with, you know, we had four little ones. And I can remember she would say, I just want to go to the bathroom and shut the door and, and do it by myself. And I was like, huh, what does that mean? And she goes, that's all I want. Okay, so here Abraham is being told, you're going to have a child. That's going to be a lot of work. It's going to engage him into some new things. And I also appreciate the sense of humor. I appreciate that Sarah can laugh. (laughs) That's a good one. And God said, you know, why did you laugh? Oh, I didn't laugh. No, you laughed. I think God was laughing. I think, no, you laughed. He, He called her on it. No, this is what's going to happen, and you laughed. And so they're left with this, but... Now the conversation continues as Abraham has opened up his home. God has revealed a plan for them. And the conversation continues in verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham is called the friend of God. And God says to himself, apparently, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And it's almost as if God is feels it would be the wrong thing to do to hold something back from Abraham. What a beautiful passage. That God would feel that it's wrong to hold something back from his people that he actually wants to engage them. Psalm 25, verse 14, it says, The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord confides in his people, those who fear him. And so here, God confides in Abraham. And Abraham, verse 18, will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous 
that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And so now we're entering another scenario, much like that of Noah, where things were so bad that God had to step in and intervene. The outcry has been so huge. The outcry from his children in Egypt when they were under slavery was so huge that God could not ignore it. And I think so many times the outcry of the injustice in the world, every now and then it just gets so much that God steps in and he intervenes and he's doing so again. And he wants us to be the people who intervene as well. And so he's going to see if this is as bad. He will know. Verse 22 says, The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, and I love this because now Abraham is going to begin to barter with God. The religious term is intercede. Okay? That's the real. We're going to intercede for someone. It's bartering. Okay? It's bargaining. It's going on behalf of someone. And so we see Abraham bartering with God. You only approach God, by the way, in this way, if you feel that you're able to. In other words, you have to have some kind of relationship to be able to go up to God and say, hey, can you do this? Would you do this? And so we see what Abraham is going to say in verse 22, or verse 23 says, then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away? And not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Listen to what he says next. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked. Treating the righteous and the wicked alike, far be it from you, will not the judge of the earth do right? Right? That's pretty intense. Now, we think of it as like, come on, you're not going to do this. But really, what Abraham is doing is echoing what he knows about God. He's telling God what he already knows about him, that the judge is going to judge what is right. He's not so much accusing God as he is revealing what he knows about him. But he's not afraid to do so. And he has reason because we know that Lot is in Sodom. We've read that. And so now he's got his nephew over there. You're going to wait. I've got family there. And if he's okay, are you going to kill him too? That's not like you. That's not the character that I know you to have. And I think it's important we remember this that God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked, that he will judge and do what is right. In verse 26, the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? And so I love his reasoning here because he's like, well, then what if there's just five less? He, he's trying, what, what is the bargain? Where is the line? If I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. Verse 29, once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? Now he drops it by 10. He's getting a little bolder. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold, he said, I will not if I find 30. Verse 31, now that I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? Now, maybe Abraham is thinking of Lot, his wife, his daughters, maybe there friends. He's trying to narrate, what if this family is found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. 
We need to know God well enough that we can enter with boldness before him. Not arrogance. Abraham lowered himself. He was humble in his request, but he was not afraid to request. God, if there's only 10 that are righteous, would you still destroy it? Will you spare the city for 10? And God says, I will. And once again, we're seeing the heart of God. And Abraham's speech is conscious and controlled. It's peppered with apologies and humility, but it's also echoing concern. Concern for those he knows are in the city. And we're going to see later that the reason God was so concerned was actually because Abraham was concerned. Now, we don't have a lot of time, but we're going to jump into chapter 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're going to start this off by saying, what we have heard about this story, I think many times has been very skewed. Skewed in the fact that it's only pointing to one specific area of sin, and that's homosexuality. And I don't believe that that is the context of the problem at all, as we will see. So verse 1 of chapter 19, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. This would be where business was conducted. So he is a person who is a part of the business of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them, bowed down with his face to the ground. So he recognized something in them as well. And just like Abraham, now we see that he's being very hospitable. He's a person of hospitality. He's going up to them. And he bows down. He says, my lords, in verse 2, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet, spend the night, and go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Again, familiar, hospitality, showing the kindness to them. Before they had gone, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like to them, but don't do anything to these men. And for they have come under the protection of my roof. Not favoring Lot at all, right? We're not getting a good impression from him. Verse 9, Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? And so we see here that there's something going on. You're going to judge us? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were there at the door of the house, young and old with blindness, so that they could not find the door. There's a very similar account to this in Judges chapter 19 where again, the people wanted to come, they wanted to get the person out of the house. Instead, he sent his concubine out and they raped her and left her and she ended up dying and and it was a brutal and awful story, just like this is. But we need to understand something about culture and perspective, a historical culture and perspective if we're going to interpret this right because these two stories are very similar. It wasn't just homosexuality, that's why Lot says, here, take my daughters. What was taking place is there was the wanting to prove their control. A stranger has come in, we want them to know that we are in charge. We're going to put them in their place. We're going to let them know we have the right to do whatever we want. And that's really the characteristic that's taking place more than anything else. These stories are about contempt, about violence, and the will to power. They illustrate in the most brutal and horrific ways 
how locals would degrade strangers. It, it was purposeful. Put someone in their place, let them know that they're no better than the locals. It was a way of showing strangers who was in charge. And the fear of strangers was not uncommon. Okay, They had spies that were coming out. They wanted to make sure that if these men were spies from another tribe, that they were dealt with harshly so that when they went back, they would say, oh, don't go there. Those people, they're terrible. And so we see that taking place. And what the angels came to observe in Sodom wasn't one specific sin that deserved punishment or even to count how many different sins were being committed. They came to evaluate the people as humans made in God's image. They, they came to bring this kind of understanding to them. And what kind of people were they? What was their nature? Remember, that's what he said. We want to see what they are like. And what did the angels find? Sodom threatened brutality to strangers, revealed the inner condition of who they were and what their culture was. They were arrogant, haughty, self-absorbed, without empathy for others. Now, the reason we know that this is the case is because God tells us so in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, it says this, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. He's going to tell us what the sin is. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. We see the hospitality theme. We see they were people who were hostile. They weren't concerned. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. That's God's condemnation to Sodom. He doesn't focus on the homosexuality. That is just one of the evidences of where they were to do the evil that they wanted to do. See, I I have friends who are gay, and they would find this as atrocious as a heterosexual. And so to pin this all, well, this is what homosexual is like, is really a terrible thing to do. It doesn't mean that we agree with homosexuality. It's just don't broad brush this whole thing. Don't be disrespectful and, again, judgmental and quick to speak and not think things through. That's not what is taking place here. What's taking place here is these people are brutal. They're inconsiderate. They're abusing people. And that is their nature. And if God doesn't deal with these people, they will become like a disease and start to spread and start to infiltrate other areas. We already see that it's a prominent place. And so it's already a place of influence. And what God is, again, trying to stop is the evil and the violence from spreading. It's not this one sin was so bad, God had to judge it. No, it was these people had become so bad. And again, Ezekiel 16.49 tells that. Their souls had become so toxic. Punishing each individual sin wouldn't change them. You know, you have to cut off the limb that is gangrene to save the body. And we see something similar happening with what God is doing here. And so Jesus' words in Matthew 23 says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so we see that God is always concerned about people. And when people are abusive towards people, God cares. And Abraham and Lot both show God kindness, hospitality. They're both people who are concerned. Now, now Lot has moved from a, a, a person, he's moved to a person who is now in a very bad place. He is one of the officials as he was at the gate and as they say are you going to now judge us he had become important in the city but it wasn't affecting him 
Not the way it should. In verse 12, try and zip through this. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Now, who is this outcry from? What is this outcry? Why is this outcry to God? It's probably because what was going to be done to these men had been done to a lot of people and probably not just men. That was probably the condition for who knows how many people and how much injustice is taking place. And God hears that outcry and God is not absent from the picture. He is involved and he steps in and he says, I can't allow this outcry to continue. I will destroy it. Verse 14 says, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Interesting, this word joking is the same word that's used with Sarah when she laughed. It's kind of like not taking it seriously. And so there are so many parallels between what happened with Abraham and what's happening with Lot. They both greet the Lord. But Abraham... Abraham invites the Lord to his threshold here. The people of the city try to take Lot out of his threshold. Abraham tells the Lord, you're the judge of all the earth. You will do right. The men there in the city of Sodom said, are you going to judge us? Sarah laughs. Lot's sons-in-law think he's joking. Verse 15, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands. He hesitated. He waited. Grasped his hands. Why? Maybe friends, maybe family. The wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has, if your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to, to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. And so now we see Lot is also bargaining, bargaining with God. Just like Abraham said, um, can you spare it for their sake? But now Lot is doing this for his own sake. He said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. Interesting. I can't do anything until you reach it. It was Abraham's concern for Lot that spared the city. It was Abraham's intercession, pleading for Lot that spared the city. That was the town that was called Zoar. Verse 23, by the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in those cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Sarah shared Abraham's promise. Lot's wife shared Sodom's fate. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, returned to the place where he stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. And when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Why did Lot become this person? Why was Lot in this place? Why did God have to go there and rescue him to, to bring about this judgment? It wasn't just the environment that he was in. It had to do 
with the compromises that he made. And we see some of those compromises even in the story. Here, take my daughters. You know, like how heartless is that? We, we see that he's a person who's trying to basically make a living for himself. We, we saw when Abraham and Lot separated, he chose the land and pitched his tent towards Sodom because it was going to be more advantageous to him. And so here's a person maybe who's driven by money, driven by his ability to obtain things, but in the process, he's sacrificing more than he realizes. And we see Abraham interceding for Lot. Remember, Abraham has already rescued him once. He he sent out his people when Lot was taken captive and he went out and rescued him. And so we see that Abraham is a person of action who is involved. I I recently was talking with someone just about prayer and was thinking through this whole idea of interceding and praying and praying persistently as Luke 18 tells us we're supposed to in the parable Jesus gives. And like, why why is it that we have to persist? And, And maybe what it does is it actually engages us to be a part of the situation. Maybe by praying consistently, it shows that we are actually concerned. Maybe it involves us in the situation, even like Abraham was already involved with Lot's life. And maybe God is looking to us to say, well, if I do something here, will you be there if I do it? If I do help this person out, will you be there to help them out further? If I do answer this prayer and open this door to go into this area and minister, will you be the one who will go and do the work? Maybe prayer and that persistence of Abraham actually shows that, you know, I will be involved with what you are doing in that area. And so God sees the persistence and he sees that you are connected to this You are involved with it. So if I work, you will be a part of that work. Because remember, God uses the human agent to be a part of the work that he does. And it was because of Abraham's persistence that God remembered Abraham when he spared Lot. And Lot made compromises that affected his life, affected his family. I'm not going to go into the rest of the story. It's just awful. After the destruction of the city, what happens with Lot and his daughters is terrible. It's very similar to what happened to Noah after the flood. There, there is something that happens to the human psyche when we see this kind of destruction take place with mass people. The first thing Noah did after the flood was build a vineyard and get drunk. Maybe he just could not deal with the knowledge of what has happened. It was horrific. You know, and again, I don't know about the movie, but I know Sunday school paints the ark. The animals are all smiling. There's the giraffes with their heads out the windows, even though there weren't windows. You know, they're all sitting there smiling, and it's like, oh, God, yeah, God. This is a horrific event. And when horrific things happen... Usually it doesn't leave a good wake. Usually there's going to be more destruction, more problems that follow. And that's what we see here. But what we need to do is be people who make right decisions so that how we live and the way it affects other people will be done in a way that is wise. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How do you understand what the will of the Lord is unless you spend time with him? How can we understand what the will of the Lord is unless we too can be his friend? Unless we too can be like Abraham and see him and be a servant to him. We know that the will of the Lord is to be hospitable, to be people who are kind, people who are under self-control, people who are generous. This is the will of the Lord. And so let us walk as wise Let's not get ourselves in situations like Lot. Let's know 
the danger signs. Let's see and hear the outcry that is going up to God before we have to be a part of that so that we can walk in a way that honors him. Let's pray. Lord, as as we again read these stories and and see the connection between Abraham and Lot and the, the similarities between the two stories and yet the completely different results. Lord, I I see those kind of similarities in life. People who make good choices and benefit from them and people who make bad choices and regret them. And so, Lord, help us to be wise to make the right choice. And, And Lord, as we again see something that is just horrific and a destruction of a city and its people, we know that... There was the outcry before there was the destruction. There was the wickedness before there was the judgment. And we see once again, you are a person of compassion. We see again that hospitality and character matters to you. It's not what we know. It's not the things that we do so much as what we are becoming. And so Lord, may we ask the question, Who am I becoming? Am I becoming a person who is hospitable? Am I becoming a person who is passionate, concerned? Or am I becoming a person who is judgmental, self-righteous, argumentative? Lord, how can I better represent who you are? And may we stop and, and every few months or every year look back and say am I a better person than I was a year ago may we see progress in our lives may we pitch our tent in the right direction so that we will have the right future again thank you for this story Lord may it cause us to think and as we go through this book may you challenge the stereotypes that we have the things that maybe we've put in our mind that just aren't the focus. May we see what really is, what you really care about. May we know your heart enough to come to you with confidence and boldness and humility and beg of you mercy for those that we love and for the situations that we're involved with. Thank you, God, for this time. Continue to work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.